Welcome to Introduction to Feminist and Social Justice Studies. This is the 17th audio episode of the semester-long course for the Gender, Sexuality, Feminist, and Social Justice Studies program at McGill University, taking place in the fall of 2021. My name is Dr. Alex Ketchum. I'm your professor for this course. I'm joined by three teaching assistants who are graduate students at McGill University. Our teaching team will lead you through the materials of this course. Today's episode will talk about technology in relation to labor and how that is gendered, raced, and class, surveillance, privacy, and policing, and more. Let's get started. My face is the front of shop. My face is the real shop front. My shop is the face I front. I'm real when I shop my face. Today's song is Face Shopping by Sophie. Sophie was a Scottish trans woman music producer, songwriter, and musician. She is known for her use of synthetic sounds. One of my former teaching assistants, also named Sophie, Sophie Ogilvie Hansen, introduced me to the music of Sophie as she was writing about Sophie's work as part of her master's thesis in musicology. She argues that Sophie plays with the malleability of the natural, in turn calling into question the naturalness of gender categories within her music. Does this choice speak to a reimagining of the corporeal condition? The lyrics of Face Shopping state, My face is the front of shop. My face is the real shop front. My shop is the face I front. I'm real when I shop my face. The song's music video features a 3D render of Sophie's face and body being distorted in various ways, cut up amongst flashing images and the song's lyrics. As the artist explained, it's about the emphasized idea that if you are showing more face, you're somehow being more real. But of course, there's a flip side to that, where you have false identities or different projections of yourself that you're able to cultivate through your image, end quote. Despite working in the music industry for years, Sophie did not re- reveal her own face publicly until her 2017 music video, It's Okay to Cry. Sadly, Sophie passed away in January 2021. I chose the song for today's class because it speaks to some of the ambiguity about the role of technology in our lives. While Sophie plays with technology and image manipulation, we can compare her work done by a real person to the music of Michaela, also known as Lil Michaela or Michaela Souza. You may have heard her song, Hate Me. Michaela is a virtual Instagram influencer and musician, now turned YouTube star. The thing is, she's not real. She's not a robot, all that although that's what her Instagram profile now says. After a drawn-out Instagram saga where another CGI model, Bermuda, accused her of not being real, yep, this really happened, she's a CGI character created by an LA-based startup worth $125 million in 2019. She poses in advertisements for large brands like Calvin Klein and Prada and does interviews with Vogue. The creators made part of her backstory be that she was a mixed racial heritage. She is not the only CGI character that has the backstory of being a woman of color, but she is a character whose image is controlled by white creators. We can also see this happening with Shooter Graham, another CGI model and influencer. White photographer and creator Cameron James Wilson says he was inspired by dark-skinned models and created Shooter Graham. He is profiting off of African aesthetics and taking away jobs from black models. So rather than paying 
actual artists, musicians, and models from diverse backgrounds, we can see this push for CGI models who appear to be diverse, but who are actually controlled by white creators. The case of the CGI models and musicians brings us to some of the main questions raised by today's lecture. When is technology liberatory? What is the relationship between technology and power? How can technology be used to concentrate power? Who do these technologies benefit? How are those benefits raced, classed, and gendered? And whose vision of the future are we living in? A question raised by Ruha Benjamin. Is it our dream or the dream of a few millionaires and billionaires? There are so many ways to approach the question of technology. I would divide the lecture into three parts. One, labor. Two, robots. And three, surveillance and AI. These themes are all interconnected. Let's start with technology and labor. Let's historicize the phenomenon a bit in order to see the, set the context for today's discussion. I want to begin by talking about the optional reading for today, the introduction to Ruth Schwartz Cohen's 1983 book, More Work for Mother, The Ironies of Household Technology from the, urban, from the Open Hearth to the Microwave. In this classic text, Cohen argues that the development of key household technologies did not create less work, or at least they didn't reduce the labor for women in the household. She argues that the household did not have to develop the way it did. We could have had large-scale laundry and cooking. We could have industrialized the home. The technologies which were, were developed removed men's piece of the work, but actually increased women's. She gives the historical example of the grain mill. Women were still having to bake bread, even if men didn't have to mill it anymore. Cohen shows the ways that new technologies led to new standards, higher standards of cleanliness. This process was not merely accomplished by the invention of certain technologies. Cultural ideologies needed to support certain work practices, like the standards of washing. Cohen's narrative challenges the idea that machines will save us from all the drudgery. So why is this important? It is important it's important to question whose work is replaced by technology. Is labor being reduced or only shifted? Who in society takes on these tasks? Is it the more marginalized group? How does race, class, and gender come into this? This piece leads us to one of the required readings for today, Astra Taylor's 2018 piece, The Automation Trade. In the piece, Taylor argues that the that media discourses of automation inaccurately portray the actual labor that goes into what she calls thought photomation. This is a way of eschewing the actual labor practices that allow for cheaper, faster products. In this piece, she provides historical examples that illustrate this pattern, as well as con contemporary examples of technology as requiring a global capitalist system. Taylor argues that robots lend this centuries-old dynamic a troubling twist. Employers threaten employees with the specter of machine competition, shirking responsibility for their avaricious disposition through opportunistic appeals to tech determinism. Basically, by saying that robots can replace you, employers use the threat of technology to control employees. Taylor shows that although automation is presented as a neutral process, the straightforward consequence of technological progress, one needn't look that closely to see that this is hardly the case, writing, Automation is both a reality and an ideology, and thus a weapon wielded against poor and working people who have the audacity to demand better treatment, or just the right to subsist. But if you look even closer, things get stranger still. 
Automated processes are often far less impressive than the puffery and propaganda surrounding them imply, and sometimes they are nowhere to be seen. Jobs may be eliminated and salaries slashed, but people are often still laboring alongside or behind the machines, even if the work they perform has been de-skilled or goes unpaid. Here we can see how this photomation, this myth of techno-utopia, is wielded against workers. Here we can see how the socialist feminist tradition that we looked at earlier in this term with the wages for housework movement is a powerful resource because it is centrally concerned with what work is, and in particular, how capitalism lives and grows by concealing certain kinds of work, refusing to pay for it, and pretending it's not, in fact, work at all. Taylor argues that we have to recognize both the dangers and possibilities associated with automation while relentlessly poking holes in the rhetoric that seeks to conflate technology's present and potential capacities with an inescapable and deeply exploitative way of organizing labor and compensation. Where photomation attempts to pass as automation, we should call it out as such. This is an argument built upon by David A. Banks in the July 2020 article, Automatic Further Bosses, Workers may be more affected by robots taking their bosses' jobs than their own, which I've linked to in the transcript. Banks writes, speaking about the gig economy and technology, what makes this convenience possible is a kind of automation, but not the version that replaces workers with robots. Rather, it is powered by cheap contract labor, manned by sophisticated suites of software, sensors, and algorithms, a model that is branching out to all sectors of the economy. The transformation goes like this. Someone finds friction in daily life and smooths it over with underpaid labor, venture capital, and a slick interface. In that early honeymoon phase, the company and its app get adoring media attention that re-emphasizes the supposed bargain of consumer convenience for workers' exploitation. The antagonistic relation between consumer and service worker is also built directly into the apps themselves by rating systems that encourage and even reward users to pass judgment on workers. How many stars does the Somali immigrant deserve for driving you to the airport? What kind of review does the 60-year-old fry cook get? Consumers are lured by the convenience and invited to tattle on workers if they are insufficiently subservient. Their self-centered expectations about customer service become a direct means for undermining workers. Essentially, robots aren't taking over most of the jobs that require interaction with humans. Rather, technology is being used to monitor and regulate our work more, whether that is workers in an Amazon warehouse or office workers doing remote work during the pandemic. So to this, Banks adds, bosses now have the means and motivation to mediate the entirety of work leaving room for bots and AI to watch, listen, and govern employees. Performance reviews can take on the character and nuance of an Uber ride rating with statistics about how often you speak up in meetings, how chipper you are in the morning, and how long it takes you to eat lunch. Even as the control over the when and where of work loosens, the character speed and effect of that work will continue to be brought under increased mechanistic scrutiny. And in an increasingly automated world, autonomy, dignity, and privacy are not the things that scale. So here, the question of technology and workers' rights are very important. This becomes a matter of surveillance, and this leads us to the second part of today's lecture, surveillance, data, and AI. The other reading for today was the first chapter, Are Robots Racist? from sociologist Ruha Benjamin's 2019 book, Race After Technology. 
In the chapter, Benjamin looks at the ways that people assume that artificial intelligence is neutral, but is in fact very, very far from that. It's a refrain you may have heard before. Humans are flawed. Let's leave it to the algorithm to decide what to do since algorithms are neutral. But actually, this is so far from the truth. AI is based on data sets which are biased. Humans are still in the loop. She writes that the extent that machine learning relies on large, naturally occurring data sets that are ride with racial and economic and gendered biases, the raw data that robots are using to learn and make decisions about the world reflect deeply ingrained cultural prejudices and structural hierarchies. So this is a point made by so many amazing scholars, activists, and artists, such as Ruha Benjamin, Kathy O'Neill, Meredith Broussard, and more. In the example in the chapter you read, the algorithm is supposed to determine who is the most beautiful. However, the results reflect Western beauty standards and 38 of the 44 winners were white. Benjamin then gives examples in this chapter and throughout her book about how we can see this play out with automated decision-making when it comes to sentencing in court, the distribution of social services, HR files and hiring, and more. Benjamin writes, Reflecting on the connection between workforce diversity and skewed data sets, one tech company representative noted that if the training data is produced by a racist society, it won't matter who is on the team, but the people who are affected should also be on the team. What then happens is an automation of anti-blackness. The solution is not just to get more data, as argued by Yeshi Miller, founder of Data for Black Lives, and Mimi Anuaha, creator of Missing Data Sets. Not all data should be collected as it can be used against people, particularly marginalized people. A key part of Ruha Benjamin's work is that she doesn't just argue that technology can be used to reinforce racism and bolster racist institutions. Rather, she argues that race itself is a technology of racism. The creation of racial categories was a technology in order to bolster racism that allowed for the oppression and exploitation of some groups of people. This book, Race After Technology, was one of the books that you could have read for the first assignment. And even if you picked another book to read for the assignment, I recommend, I recommend reading the whole thing. This idea of disruption, this idea uh, that technology will save us, is called techno-utopianism. What ends up happening instead is a concentration of power. We see how technology is used first on more marginalized communities and is then used as a tool of surveillance. These technologies are often built by white communities and deployed against communities of color first. For example, with facial, recogni with facial recognition technologies, the initial data sets are based on white skin tones and don't work on darker skin tones. Joy Buomwini's work, Gender Shades, which I linked to in the transcript, shows the way that facial recognition software works best on white men's faces and worse on black women's faces. Facial recognition technologies have been used by police departments to make arrests and have already led to the misarrest of people of color. There are so many ways to look at the intersections between social justice, social injustice, and technology. Privacy, surveillance, and technology as a form of policing behavior are just one of these topics. As students at McGill, you are under surveillance this term and not just this term. I think it's important that you know on the My Courses platform, your instructors can see what links you have clicked on, what documents you have uploaded, how you have interacted with the platform, and more. 
There's 250 of you in this class. Your education is up to you. I only care about the timestamp of when you turn in your two writing assignments, event write-up, and three quizzes so that we can make sure to greet them. However, you should know that on my courses and similar platforms like Canvas, instructors can see the last time you logged into the platform, how much time you've spent on the platform, how often you've participated in course activities, which days you've been acted, your student photo, which assignments you've completed, including which have been submitted on time versus late, which of the reading files you have opened, your participation and how often you viewed pages, what percentile you're in for grades in the class, your major, and more. In so many aspects of our lives, our work is being quantified and we are facing levels of unnecessary surveillance. Data is collected about us on so many platforms and used without our knowledge or consent or a kind of insincere consent where we have to opt in or opt out of so many technologies. Companies know that very few people have the time to read hundreds of pages of materials. I know that I will often accept or click I accept the cookies on a website or quickly scroll through a user agreement with our King legal and or technical language it's hard to even know what you're sometimes agreeing to. With this lecture, I want us to think about the ways in which technology is so embedded in our lives and our data is extracted. For example, the applications I'm relying on to make this course, Hindenburg for audio, iTunes, Podbean, Google Docs, Google Drive, Blogger via Google, My Courses, McGill Libraries, WorldCat, Canva for the graphic design, Adobe products, and of course the internet. I rely on the hardware of my laptop, the podcast microphone, and pop screen, and external hard drive. For each episode, I write a script in a Google Doc saved in my Google Drive, I record the sound on Hindenburg, and import and edit other audio files, export the mp3 file, upload it to the Podbean account, grab the link from the website I built on a blogger platform for the page that I'll put in the transcript, and input the metadata for each podcast episode. I made the logo and banner in Canva. I go to the Google Doc, download a PDF, upload to my Google Drive in a special folder, change the share settings embed, get the embed code, and paste the code into the blog post format, where I also paste the embed code from the Podbeam player. I have to do this for each of the 22 episodes for this course. My computer is almost out of memory, so I store all these files on an external hard drive. To improve this audio sound, I have a podcast mic and pop screen. Think about how many technologies I'm relying on to make this course accessible. Think about how many corporations I depend on. Think of how many technical skills I've had to learn. I have to put your readings on my courses. I've also had to upload it to so many podcasting apps. At so many points in this process, data is extracted. These technologies facilitate my labor, but also create new forms of labor, bringing to mind Ruth Schwartz Cohen's book. The technologies demand learning new skills while this work is seen as part of a trend of de-skilling. A big issue is that folks are being subjected to technologies and surveillance without their knowledge. Most people don't know the technical details about what is happening. Written in 2018 by Mimi Onuaha and Mother Cyborg, Diana Nusera, A People's Guide to AI is a comprehensive beginner's guide to understanding AI and other data-driven tech. The guide uses a popular education approach to explore and explain AI-based technologies so that everyone, from youth to seniors, and from techies to experts, to not from non-techies to experts, have the chance to think critically about the kinds of futures automated technologies can bring. I linked to a page where you can purchase the zine or download the PDF for free in the transcript. The idea that an important part of social justice and achieving equity 
is being able to control the technologies that one is subjected to. And this isn't a new idea. As part of the Black Panther's 10-point program, number 10 is, we want land, bread, housing, education, clothing, justice, peace, and people's community control of modern technology. Within disability rights activism, a key phrase is, nothing about us without us. What this phrase means is that if a technology or policy is deployed or targeted at a particular community, that community should be actively involved. The Design Justice Network and Sasha Constanza Chalk have written, it's not just right now. There's a long history of designers attempting to use design as a force for good. Some of us adopt a do no harm policy against working on projects or with clients who are particularly problematic. Others contribute occasional pro bono time to design for nonprofits or community-based organizations. By now, social impact design, inclusive design, participatory design, human-centered design, and co-design are familiar terms. These design approaches are full of good intentions, but good intentions alone aren't enough to ensure the design serves as a tool for liberation. Beyond an intent to do good, we need an approach that explicitly focuses on how every design process can reproduce and or challenge specific, specific kinds of power inequities. End quote. We can see the rise of tech-won't-build-it movements, of engineers refusing to build weapons, and comes from the idea that technology should be used for broader good. This movement is particularly... Uh, for those who work in the technology industry and who need to grapple with these issues in practice. This has resulted in some workers refusing to work for government policing agencies. A problem is that oftentimes the technologies that workers develop are deployed in ways that they were never consulted about. Technology is so far from neutral. A theme of so much of this course is whose voice is the voice of power? I want to wrap up today's lecture by thinking about voice technology assistants, such as Siri or Alexa. These assistants are gendered female in the default settings in Canada and the United States. Makers of these assistants reflect that users are more comfortable with a woman serving them. We encounter people yelling at them and being abusive. As researcher Sarah Mars West of the AI Now Institute discussed in her talk at McGill last year, in a statement, to the statement, you're a slut, Siri will respond, I'd blush if I could. Alexa responds, well, thanks for the feedback. Cortana prompts a web browser search. These virtual assistants perpetuate harmful stereotypes of women being there to provide service. They're programmed to respond to explicit and sexually aggressive language with placid remarks or mild flirting. How do virtual assistants impact our ideas about who has the voice of power? In response, a team of researchers last year created Q a gender-neutral voice assistant. I linked to Q in the transcript, as well as an interview with Q's creators. Some lectures are harder to write than others. I found writing today's lecture difficult because there's so much I wanted to talk to you about. In the winter of 2020, I taught a GSFS 401 level course, Feminist Futurities, Technologies, and Worldmaking for 20 students, where we explored these topics and much more in more detail. It's likely that I'll teach a version of that class again in the future. In the meanwhile, you can check out the syllabus at the link I've included in the transcript if you want additional readings on these topics, alexketchum.ca slash p slash syllabi.html. If you are interested in learning more about these topics,
You can watch past events that are part of Disrupting Disruptions, the feminist and accessible publishing and communications technology speaker and workshop series that I organize. I've linked to the website in the transcript. There are videos of past events, information on future events, and a podcast with audio from past events on the website. The podcast Disrupting Disruptions is also available on podcasting apps. Fun fact, two of the authors from today's reading spoke as part of the series. Astra Taylor was the first speaker for the series in January of 2019, and Ruha Benjamin spoke as part of the series in November 2019. For more about this work, you can also check out my lab, the Just Feminist Tech and Scholarship Lab. All links are in the transcripts. The next lecture is on the topic of health. The opening bell sound is school bell dot wave from 13F Panska Stranska Michaela and closing bells from Inspector J's bell counter 8 dot wave of freesound.org. Fair dealing is an exception in the Canadian Copyright Act that outlined the permitted unauthorized use of copyrighted materials for specific mandated purposes. In Canada, these purposes include research, privacy, education, parody, satire, criticism, review, or news reporting. For research and privacy, education, parody, and satire, no special requirements are required. For criticism, review, and news reporting, the source and author must be named to constitute fair dealing. This is an advertisement-free podcast used for educational purposes.